Hello friends, my name is Eric Cloward and welcome to the Stoic Coffee Break. The Stoic Coffee Break is a weekly podcast where I take different aspects of Stoicism and do my best to break them down to the most important points. I share my experiences, both my successes and my failures, and hope that you can learn something from them. This week's episode is a little bit different than my usual. It's an interview with a entrepreneur or an entrepreneur, get my English correct here, named Gavin Wilhite. Now, Gavin is one of my listeners and he contacted me a few months ago and we had a great chat about stoicism, about entrepreneurship, about life. And I found him so interesting that I decided that I would really like to interview him for my podcast. So the following interview is with him. He has created a number of companies, one of which he sold to Microsoft a few years ago. And throughout the podcast, one of the things you'll notice is that I sound very quiet on that. And part of that is because I have a new microphone that I'm using while I'm traveling. And unfortunately, I wasn't nearly as close to the mic as I thought I needed to be in order to make it sound good. So I apologize for the quieter sound on that. I did my best to bring it up as much as I could without having his vocals, which sounded good, uh, overwhelm the rest of the conversation. Anyway, here's our conversation, and I hope that you enjoyed as much as I had enjoyed talking with Gavin. Hello, everybody. Welcome to today's episode of the Stoic Coffee Break podcast. Uh, today is another interview episode. I'm going to be speaking with Gavin Wilhite. So Gavin is a longtime listener to my podcast, and he contacted me a few months ago to chat about some things. We had a great conversation. He's a serial entrepreneur, and he's got his fingers in a lot of different pies. Um, I'm not going to go too much into that because I think it'll just be part of the conversation as we're going. But like I said, we just had a really interesting conversation. I really enjoyed chatting mm -hmm. with him, and I was like, hey, you know, we should sit down and talk for an hour or two and just kind of talk through stoicism, talk through entrepreneurship, uh, talk about making an impact on the world and doing mm -hmm. the things that we can do with the tools that we have. Uh, we're also going to touch on how stoicism is a powerful tool if you are running your own business and how that helps you to be a much better leader. Because I think that, as we can see from the throughout history, the good leaders all seem to display stoic principles in their lives. And we're going to talk about how we can apply mm -hmm. those. Um, and then just kind of talk about whatever comes up in conversation. So welcome, Gavin. I appreciate you taking the time this afternoon. I know we had a few technical glitches getting started up here, and I'm starting a bit later than expected, but I really appreciate your patience on that. So why don't, Absolutely. You, why don't you go ahead and introduce yourself and tell us a little bit about your background? Sure. Well, you know, first of all, thanks for having me on. Uh, I, as you said, I've been a longtime listener, uh, and your podcast has helped me through some challenges, I, I will say. So thanks. Um, yeah, a little bit about myself. Um, I'm born and raised out in uh, Hawaii. Um, went to school out here in California. I have been kind of in tech entrepreneurship and uh, just working with startups, um, you know, for maybe, I guess, around a, a decade now, a little bit longer. Uh, and, um, you know, I my career has mostly been taking technology and design principles from video games and bringing it into different fields. Uh, so we use that for a social VR platform that we sold to Microsoft. Uh, called Altspace VR, um, used that uh, to help um, a company who is uh, 3D printing human tissues. Uh, we built out a generative uh, 3D modeling platform for them. Um, uh, my most recent company that sadly we had to shut down, uh, was called QuestGiver, doing uh, gamified uh, volunteering 
And so, you know, always trying to figure out ways that we can use, you know, either gaming or just sort of technology in general uh, for social good. Um, Excellent. Excellent. So kind of interest with the, so the social VR, is that similar to kind of Meta's Horizons, I think is what they call it? Yeah, it is. Uh, actually, a bunch of my um, uh, uh, Altspace alumni, some of my uh, old uh, impl- uh, people that I worked with and co-founders uh, were over there building that afterwards. Yep. Oh, nice. Nice. And what, how come now were you planning to continue on in VR or was that something that was just something of was interest? And then once you got a good offer, you were like, eh, it's time for me to step away from this. You know, it's uh, and that's a long story history. <laughs> There's definitely, uh, you know, if I had been more into stoicism at that time, I think um, it, it would have come in handy there. Uh, there was some, some uh, it was a bumpy ride uh, to the acquisition. Uh, but, um, you know, I really loved it. Uh, but, you know, there was some challenges at the end, and I, I really do love kind of, you know, switching learning new fields and stuff like that. So it was, I think, important for me to uh, try my hand at other things. I was very excited and kind of going a little bit from the world of bits to atoms, uh, and so thus the you know, biotech stuff. Uh, but it's still definitely, um, you know, I uh, love playing uh, Beat Saber and, you know, getting in there, and uh, there may still be VR projects in the future. Nice, nice. And the uh, now the project you're currently working on is maybe you can give us some more information about that. Well, yeah. So you know, this is why it's a it's a fun time for a Stoic podcast. Is I had to shut down the startup about two months ago. <laughs> so, oh, that's right. Yeah. And what we yeah. and- um, so you know yeah at the moment I'm going back to uh, something that I've cared a lot uh, for a while, which is AI safety. And so okay. I'm looking to see if there's ways that I can help out with that at the moment. Okay. And what exactly would that entail as far as AI safety? I mean, I understand there's the yeah. The ideas of finding ways to make sure that that biases and so on that we have mm-hmm. aren't aren't built in, which is challenging because AI is trained on us. And so when it has bigotry, misogyny, all of these things, right. it's just a reflection of us. And so that's it's kind of hard. How do we sanitize that, but still keep it human ish, I guess? That's right. Yeah. And when I think about this, um, and it's it's a big topic, so, you know, maybe for another podcast, but I think, you know, the, the, the major way that I look about this is that there's kind of, there's there's near-term, kind of mid-term, and then long-term concerns, right, or risks. Um, I think the, the near-term concerns are the ones that you kind of bring up, right? Things that involve, um, you know, chatbots giving, you know, sort of dangerous responses or biased responses or, you know, uh, AI systems that are, you know, doing credit, you know, checks, right, uh, that, that aren't real credit checks, but they're, you know, are they biased, right? Um, and then on the on the far future, I think you have things where, you know, it is more speculative, but I think very, very real concerns of, you know, what happens if these, um, you know, agents that we're creating uh, have goals that aren't aligned with us, right? And either we have accidents or sort of malicious actors, you know, we're trying to deploy these. Uh, you can have cybersecurity risks from sort of self-replicating viruses, right? These sorts of things. And so, um, you know, the the the, the former, uh, the, the near-term stuff is a little bit easier to get funded because it is stuff that it would embarrass an AI company, right? Or it cause them liability. The more far future stuff is a little bit more philanthropically funded, um, I'm going to see how close I can get to, to the, to the far future end, but you know, the, the funding is closer to the, to the near term uh, risks mm. right now. Now, curious, I know this is a bit of a, a slight offshoot of that. Um, but as somebody who's been in tech for a long time, the idea of AI and what, what constitute consciousness and stuff like that, do you, do you think we're there yet? Or do you think that that's far off? Do you think it's already happened or 
do you have a different definition of consciousness that that you would hold up to AI than what other people are holding up to AI? That's a that's a that's a very deep question. Um, <laughs> it's a very deep question. So you know, I think you can break down consciousness. And there's, there's certainly writers who've done a better job on this than, than I'll be able to. But, you know, I think you can look at it as, you know, is there self-awareness? Is there kind of like, you know, a lot of people will say things like, are the lights on, right? You know, I think that is a, a very challenging question to answer because, you know, I did a weird experiment once where like I was reading a bunch of books on free will and like started to think of myself more of as like a, you know, kind of deterministic automata. And like your subjective experience starts to become a little bit more like that. You, you don't, you feel like a little bit less conscious when you are like thinking. <laughs> so it doesn't feel like it's necessarily like a hard and fast thing. It feels like something that is very emergent, very kind of hard to pin down. So, you know, I, I think when you're talking about that in regards to AI, I think the first place that comes up is are there ethical concerns for the AIs that you're creating, right? Mm -hmm. Um and, you know, I think it is a sort of, you know, it becomes a relevant question. I don't think we're at a point where that is necessarily a, a relevant question, but it will be. Um, I think, honestly, I think there's sort of a school like behavioralism, like, is it acting like a conscious entity? And I think that that may be the best, like, is, is that plus sufficient complexity? Uh, uh, I think maybe the closest that we get in the near term, but, you know, I'm definitely open to, to learn more about this. Yeah, for me, I guess my one kind of caveat to having an AI right now, because there are a lot of people who believe that basically what we have with some of these LLMs are that they are conscious or that there are other things that are combinations of that are conscious like that. Um, but the one thing that seems to be missing is a, a self-directed will of its own. And that's the mm -hmm. one thing that it doesn't seem to have. Like it, it, it has, it doesn't have its own will per se. It's, it's still on a servant, you know, it, you ask it something and it gives it to you. And it doesn't seem like yet, you know, again, and maybe this is just my lack of understanding of the industry yet, um, that there are any that have been put out there that do have a will of their own that are able to make those choices. And I think that that ability to choose and that ability to have a will and a directive of its own, I think, is probably one of the final things with that. Um, so I, I guess that's where I'm. Yeah, I'm curious okay. if if that will ever be the case, or if it will always be that the AIs that we have, because we've created them, that we give them a will, and so they they aren't right. really conscious in that regard. So, yeah, you know, I think the the maybe the last thing I'll say on that is that the um, so I don't you know the the current models probably aren't the thing to to be very very concerned about. Now there is things that you can do with the current models that are that are troubling, but you know really it's the models that come you know, five, maybe 10 years down the line, right? That you really have to be worried about. But but it's stuff that we need to get ahead of now. Uh, I think if you want, the, the easiest uh, maybe counter argument to that at this point in time is so people are working on the stuff like baby AGI or these other agents where you basically just get chat, uh, you put uh, chat GPT into a loop where it's coming up with its own strategy and then it's sort of spinning out little sub-processes to go pursue them, right? And it is a human gave it at the top of the, the thing, right? But it is in kind of in a loop, right? And, you know, the question is, how different is that from evolution giving us our starting goals and we figure out our, you know, set of goals, right? Or, you know, our, our parents giving us our high level goals, right? So, you know, it becomes fuzzy pretty yeah. fast. Yeah, for sure. And I'm sure that is definitely a rabbit hole that we can go down on that. Mm -hmm. um, 
I kind of alluded to something along that when I was talking in an episode I did a while back called the idea of no self in that um, there are certain Eastern thoughts where they don't believe that there's a, a truly self within us. Like you can't locate mm-hmm. anywhere in the brain. This is where the sense of self resides because you can, you can find the language centers, you can find visual processing, sure. you can find all kinds of different areas that, that function within us to make us us. But the idea behind this thought, especially, like I said, in some of the Eastern philosophies is that there's no actual self, but that the way I kind of describe it is kind of like a hologram that is, there's a creation mm-hmm. of different lasers pointing up at it. And so, but what that, and that's kind of my visualization of it, but that we are simply an end product of all of the thinking processes, internal, external stimuli that come in. Um, and that's what creates our sense of self on the fly, if you will. So that if you were, if you were to somehow be able to stop thinking that you would have no self, there would be no actual self, even if you were still alive, if you could turn off your actual thought processes. And I thought that was a fascinating idea. So for me, like, and the way I kind of visualized it was like, you know, this is uh, rational thinking, this is our emotional thinking, this is, you know, auditory input, you know, sense inputs, and that creates like this kind of hologram and that's the sense of self is this combination of all of these things. So, and I thought that was an interesting yeah. way of thinking that. And I'm like, well, if that's like the that. case, then wouldn't AI then have a, a type of consciousness or a type of self because it is a combination of all of its thinking inputs and outputs just like we are, so. Yeah, and I think you can, I, I appreciate that you're the way that you're going with that. And I think, you know, there, there are, we can start looking at, you know, like what pieces are missing, right? Like, you know, do you need long-term memory for this? Do you need, you know, right? And, you know, people are working on it. But um, I did want to say, though, I really do appreciate, and I think we might touch on this a little bit of, you know, the sort of, um, you know, how how philosophies intermesh with Stoicism, right? Uh, and, you know, Eastern philosophies in particular. I, I've, um, I, yeah, I'm sure I probably offend somebody somewhere, but I've I've always thought that, like, Marcus Aurelius and, you know, Buddha would have some really great conversations and like, I yes. want to commission a painting at some point of them, like chest bumping. Uh, <laughs> nice. I just, I, yeah. you know, uh, there's so many things where they were, you know, looking at kind of similar stuff, but you know, um, you know, there isn't like as much as, you know, the book is called meditations, right. There isn't a lot of meditation, like, you know, as we think about it, sort of mindfulness in, you know, traditional stoic practice, or at least from what I've read of it. And I think that those things mesh really well together. Right. And so. Absolutely. I When people talk to me about Stoicism, I say, well, in a nutshell, I look at Stoicism as Greco-Roman Buddhism, mm-hmm. you know, because there's yep. so many, there's so many overlaps with things like the idea of attachment, you know, mm-hmm. within Buddhist philosophies. And it's not just attachment to things, but it's also attachment to behaviors, attachment to other people, it's attachment to ideas. To outcomes. Yep. And to outcomes, yep. yeah. And Stoicism, yep. very much that. Just slightly different language, slightly different way of coming at it. Um, a little less, I think Stoicism is a little more rational based, whereas Buddhism is a little more spiritual based and, and sometimes gets a little woo woo with things, which mm-hmm. I think that for me, and when I studied Buddhism earlier, that was kind of the thing that put me off coming from a, leaving a religious background and I didn't want sure. another religion. And so, yep. but I did like a lot of Buddhist philosophy, but I think the way my brain works, Stoicism just, just hit it just right. And it was like, yep, that's. That's what I've been looking for. That's the thing. Totally. So. Yeah. And it's not to say that, that Stoicism doesn't have a tiny bit of woo too, right? Like the uh, sort of, uh, a lot of the stuff, it's natural too, right? There's a lot of, yes. all the stuff related to naturalism is a little bit, right? But but, yeah, um, but you can reinterpret, sure. I think, in, in good ways. Yeah. Yeah. And so for me, that was that was kind of a big thing. 
So tell me about how you found Buddha, uh, not Buddhism, but Stoicism and what uh, kind of what are your, what are the yeah. things in it with it are that you found most appealing? What are the things that you, uh, that you gravitate the most towards? And what are the things that help you in your life the most? That's a great question. Um, so I, you know, I first encountered it um, a number of years ago, and I was just kind of interested in it from like an academic, you know, sort of this, this is a really interesting kind of, you know, line of thinking. Um, and then I, you know, encountered a, a very kind of pretty challenging um, situation, you know, in the last few years of kind of getting harassment from somebody kind of in an ongoing way. And I, um, it's one of those situations where, you know, the control that you have over it sometimes is very, very limited, right? At least in my situation, it has been, you know, there's things you can do, right? But it's like, <laughs> uh, I was finding that, you know, the the solution, at least a large part of the solution was going to have to come from myself, not from the world around me, not changing the world around me, but sort of like how I was dealing with it. And so I remembered, you know, encountering some of this stuff and just kind of dove in. Um, I really loved that uh book um how to think like a roman emperor um okay, that yeah, was donald, donald j robinson yeah, yeah, yeah. that's right uh, i thought that was a great um that was a great kind of refresher for me some of the original texts are a little bit kind of dense for me to kind of get through so i like some of the you know modern reinterpretations um i also so while his writing style isn't necessarily mine the um uh, it doesn't jive with me super well i really love the merch that uh the dalek stoic um Oh, what's his name? Um, Ryan Holiday. Uh, yes, yeah. Uh, and so those coins, uh, and maybe we can even talk about some of those, but those have been really transformational. I have those up on my wall. I have to reflect on those pretty constantly. Um, and, you know, I think the that the constant obstacle is the way, right, is very helpful. I think the um, one of the terms um, that I have found really helpful in life recently too has been um that um oh me my friend was trying to help me learn the uh the the greek on this but it's uh is it th sympathia or symp mm -hmm. uh I believe it's pronounced uh and i think i interpret it maybe in a slightly different way but there's the sort of quote on the back of the coin is you know we are made for each other right yes uh, and the uh, that has been helpful for me to think about, okay, it doesn't matter if this person who's in my life, if they're, if they're, you know, doing kind things to me, if they're doing nice things to me, or if they're doing mean things to me, or if, you know, whatever it is, there's something for me to grow and learn from in this. And that has helped me kind of, you know, uh, get grounded, you know, lose a lot of anger, practice a lot more forgiveness, you know? So, um, that has been very helpful there. And then, you know, as we talked about in business, but, you know, there's one thing that I wanted to mention just because we were talking about AI, right? Yeah. You know, one of the reasons I care about AI and a lot of these big things, right, is that they could cause things like human extinction, right? You know, in yeah, I believe that. I believe that, you know, there's many other risks that we face, you know, whether you want to pick, you know, common impacts to, you know, runaway bioterrorism, right? And it's something I care a lot about. And one of the things that I realized in the last few years is, Stoicism is very good at helping you be outcome independent or, or, or hold indifference, outcome indifference, right? Yes. And as painful as it is, I realize that the most important places to be outcome indifferent is on the things that you care the most about. And that is hard. It is. Because uh, those are the hard. things, right? <laughs> yeah, those are the things that grip you the most. 
uh, and that, you know, get in the way of sort of thinking rationally and sort of, you know, getting through stuff. And so that I've been trying to get a little bit of, uh, you know, outcome and difference on some of those big things about, you know, whether we survive as a species or, you know, whether, you know, you know, what have you. Um, well, I think and, that it's, uh, yeah. it's just uh, a thought occurred to me Please. when you said that. Um, one of the things that I found, for example, outcome independence can really screw a lot of things up is in relationships, especially mm. romantic relationships. Right. Because can, we yes. will get this idealized version of what we think right. the relationship should be. And we want this outcome. We want all of these things. Mm -hmm. But yep. yet when you just stop and go, am I enjoying the process? Am I doing the process of the relationship well? Because a relationship is a process. Right. It is not this outcome. And we get focused on, you know, you had like uh, growing up, there was always a, the, you know, we used this thing, the family had to look good. Everything had to look like it was in order. Even if it was chaos and shambles behind the scenes, as long as it looked good at church, you were fine. And so that was an outcome. I right. wanted the process to be good. I didn't care about what other people <laughs> thought of my family. Yeah, I wanted my right. family to be good. I wanted it to be a, a place that was happy and, and yes. a place where I felt good. And it didn't. But on the outside, everybody thought, oh, everything looked great. You know, And like when you yes. see the couple... When a couple looks great all the time and then you you hear they're getting divorced and you're like, wait, what happened? I didn't understand this. And you find out behind the scenes they've been fighting tooth and nail for years. Right. You kind of go, oh, but it's because we're focused on what the outcome was. We're focused mm -hmm. on the appearance of things rather than the process of things. And if the process is good and the process is healthy, then, and you don't worry about what does it look like? What is it? Anything like this? Is it? What am I doing now? What am I actually doing with it that is working? And I think that's that's another place where that helped. And when you said that, it just popped in my head of like, oh yeah, yeah, absolutely. And I think that that you know the the one of the other principles that that plays a lot into there, right, is that sort of like um, you know act from where you are, right? Um, you know, I, I one of the coins has around it, uh, you know, uh, uh, tired or well rested, you know, sick or healthy, right? You know, whatever it is, and I think that that's. You know what that practice that acceptance right where is this relationship you know uh is it you know is it going upwards or is it the end of an arc right you know learning how to close those is is it becomes very important um and uh you know same in business right you know i think we're you know trying to kind of weave through that in this conversation a little bit and i think that having um having that realism about where where you are with your thing right and sort of you know doesn't matter if you know the the economy is good or bad you know or you know what's what's going on right um you know accepting it is useful and maybe it's important information right but always acting from where you are um yeah yeah, yeah i had i worked for a startup uh number for a number of years and i remember that the ceo when he would hear about a competitor who had added something in their in their product that was you know something that they said fairly revolutionary he would try to spin it in a way of like, oh, they probably don't do that. They're probably just making it up. And it was just like, mm. wait, what? It was like he was almost trying to soothe himself of like, we're not that oh. far behind or kind of like spin it in a way that it wasn't as great as they said it was. I'm just like, that always seemed odd to me. I'm like, well, mm. if they have it, they have it. There's nothing you can do about it. It's just a fact. You know, they added this new feature and go look at it and then come back and make a judgment about it before you say that. But it was just, it was interesting. Like it's almost like he needed to spin it in a way to make himself feel better. And I was like, that's, yeah. that's, that's not very helpful. If you're a leader of a company, you need to know right. how, how your competition is doing, what they're really doing. And if it's something that's great, try and steal it and integrate it with what you're doing. If you can, you know, so that's right. Don't, don't try and yeah. delude yourself. 
Yeah, and I think that's where you know, a lot of these stoic practices and other practices come in, right? Is that like your emotions are going to get you, whether you whether you believe that they are or not, right? And you're going to rely on an unhealthy coping strategy <laughs> if you're not explicit about it, right? And so, yeah, yes, that um, acceptance of reality is very very important. Yeah. Uh, for what it's worth, my uh, my co-founder uh, Eric Romo, he had a really great saying that he would say. He was he'd done companies in the past uh, when we were doing all space, and so he had some um, experience here. And he would always say, uh, "We're not playing tennis; we're bowling." Uh, when it came to competitors, right? Like focus on our lane, like, you know, they're going to succeed or fail. And like, it's not, you know, at least the place that we're in, it wasn't like an extraordinarily tight market where we're like competing with somebody across the street or whatever, right? Uh, and so I always like that metaphor of it's bowling, right? Just focus on your game, you know? Yeah, no, that's that's yeah. really important. You're almost, in a way, you're almost playing against yourself at that point. Right. I mean, yes, yes, the final outcome is is about you and your competitors, but you, you, know, you bowl your game as best you can, regardless of how anybody else does. Yep. Yep. Yeah. No, that's yeah. I think that's incredibly helpful. Ah, um, man, so many things to talk about. <laughs> totally. <laughs> um, I think you know maybe we can stick with the uh, the the theme of kind of um, you know emotion management and business and stuff like that. Does that yeah, work with you? Yeah. Yeah, for sure. Let's move down that path. Cool. Um, so I think you know one of the things is like. One of the things, again, that I learned from Eric was how important and, and how big of a difference it makes when a CEO is able to um, sort of process and manage and sort of kind of shield their employees from, you know, anxieties and stressors and stuff like that that is, you know, coming from investors or the market or other sorts of places, right? And there's a, there's a subtlety there on, you know, you want to still be communicating information or, you know, you know, you still want to be able to tell, you know, the, give the employees a heads up if things are going badly. Right. Um, but I have seen how tremendously big of a difference it makes, uh, when, when somebody like just lets the anxiety pass through or makes it worse <laughs> down to their employees versus is able to process that and then, you know, share it, you know, from a, you know, peaceful sort of place. Right. Um, and I think that that doesn't come naturally. That's not just something that you can try to do, right? You can just be forced, no emotion, right? It's This is where we have to come in with both of these stoic techniques and then I think also with some of the more kind of somatic uh, sort of therapies and other sorts of things that we can talk to as well. Um, no, I but, think that's uh, very true. I think that, I mean, a good leader is somebody who can understand the, the enemy or the obstacles, mm -hmm. if you will. Right. And and inspire his troops to go face them anyway. And mm -hmm. that's what's important. And the way that you do that is to not not let the shit roll downhill on them. You know, it's like you, <laughs> yeah. you know if it's coming, you're like, okay, you move that out of the way and go, okay, now this is what we have to deal with. And then you can get people unified out of them. Yeah, and I, yeah. I know that there's always the, uh, there's always that feeling that CEOs need to be hard driving and, and very mm -hmm. mission driven. And they're just like these hard charging people. But I think that you need to have that discipline. But if you don't inspire people around you, and you don't you don't have people who want to to give that, and they don't want to be they don't want to be part of that, you know, if they might they're going to go along unwillingly at that point, mm -hmm. as opposed to if you go, you know, what, this is the this is the hand we were dealt. These are the things that are coming our way. We can handle this. What do you guys think? And let's let's move mm -hmm. it that way. And I think yeah, that can be very important. 
Now, have you had instances where you worked with other CEOs that were not good that way? Yeah, I'll, I'll name the good ones and not name the bad ones, right? <laughs> or the <laughs> ones where there was more challenges. But uh-huh. but I think the, um, you know, what was I going to say there? I, I think, so I guess what I was going to say is that, you know, you you can lead with anxiety. You can lead with sort of, you know, uh, fear or just pushing, right? Uh, but it works until it doesn't. <laughs> <laughs> and you know when it doesn't it 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 goes badly and, you know there are companies I, I you know I, I will you know admit that there are companies that that find success by burning people out right um you look at places like you know Tesla and SpaceX and they turn through a lot of people and they make stuff mm-hmm. right uh but it comes with costs and i also don't want to work in that environment <laughs> i think as as people you know become more aware of what these things, places are doing to them, especially more senior people won't put up with it. Right. Um, and you know, it, it works. It also, people aren't going to be there when the times are rough. Right. Yeah. <laughs> um, if, if you leave with those other styles, I think the other thing I was going to say on that too, was that uh, one of the things that is maybe a little, it makes sense in retrospect, but like, you know, if you do manage from a place of equanimity, right the times where you maybe do like, Hey guys, this is serious. We got a month of runway or something like that. Like that's going to be a lot more effective. Like people are going to hear that and respond to that and build that, you know, get that temporary fire a lot more than if you're constantly leading with that. Right. Yeah. If it comes to cracking the whip, then people don't want to. Yeah. I mean, I've worked in, I've worked in different environments like that. And the ones that I appreciated most were the ones that took an active, an active role in creating the culture of their community and cultivating a community and cultivating as a community. Like, yes, you, yes, this is a company, but it is also a community. You're part of this Mm -hmm. community. And when they actually did listen to people when they actually did, you know, take suggestions and they actually worked to to do things, because if you don't take an active role in those types of things, uh, that, that for me was really interesting. Um, I worked for a governmental agency for a little bit and the morale there was absolutely horrible for, one for a number mm. of reasons. They didn't really do a good job of working on the corporate culture. The second was because when I got there the year before several of their top people had been forced to resign because of, I see. of corruption and kickbacks. So there oh, was geez. like, you can either resign or you can go to jail. And they're like, Oh, I'm out. And, uh, and a lot of people were pissed off that they didn't get punished. They didn't go to jail for that. You know, it's like, and so they had, and, then I worked for another company, a very similar thing had happened where there was all kinds of kickbacks and a bit of corruption on that. Mm. And so they had locked and unfortunately they had signed some contracts since so they were locked into some really bad deals that they couldn't get mm. out of because the former people had signed these things and were again, we're just forced to resign. And in both places, the morale was awful. And one was mm. so bad. I got, I was doing a contract out there and I got laid off on a Friday. And at first I was a bit panicky. I'm like, oh no, what am I going to do? I don't have a job now. And, and and Saturday morning, a little bit less so. And then I woke up Sunday morning and I was just, I was super happy. I'm like, why am I so happy? I mean, it's just Sunday morning. And I was like, I don't have to go to work there tomorrow. Ah, and it was like this giant relief. And I hadn't noticed how much stress I had been taking in working in that kind of environment. And I was yeah. just like, okay. And so from that point on, I was a bit more judicious and a little bit pickier about some of the places I worked. Mm. I mean, I, I took one, the the other one I took, that was kind of a, a rough environment. I knew that going in, but they really needed some help. And um, 
I went in knowing it was going to be a tough environment and that there was a lot of crappy morale and stuff like that. And it was just a contract. Uh, it was supposed to be only for about a year. It ended up being about 10 months. Um, but I, but because I was ready for that, I was able to prepare for it and it was fine. But it was just really sad to see that they were squandering all of this because there were a lot of good people there. And they just didn't like working there because it was just high stress and not a lot of, uh, they feel like they had a lot of support in a lot of ways. So I thought that was, that was interesting. Yeah, that's, that's, I, I hear you there. Um, I was curious maybe to ask you a question on that, which is, you know, one of the things that I've thought of that might be like a failure mode of stoicism, right? Or like, you know, what, how, where maybe there are the, the cracks here is if somebody just kind of talks themselves into staying into a bad situation or just like, you know, these are just the obstacles that I need to make my way. You know, these are the, this is, you know, just for sort of me to process and sort of, you know, do, do you, what do you think about that? Do you think that, have you seen people sort of fall into that trap or do you think that it, you know, there's, there's easy ways to like avoid that? Yeah. Yeah. I've thought about that as well myself. It's like, when do you, when do you know when to, as they say, fish or cut bait? You know, you need to find that balance of, yes, this place is challenging or these things are challenging, but when do you, there's wisdom in knowing when to stop. Mm -hmm. And I think a lot of it depends on, I think it depends on a number of factors. I think it depends on what's your end goal. You know, is mm -hmm. this, is this something where, you know, you're going to work on this job for another year because it's going to get you to some other place that you need to be. And are you willing to put up with that kind of crap to get there? I think that's one thing. Um, I think the toll it can take on your mental health, I think, is, is in incredibly important. Because if you come home and you're absolutely miserable every night and your partner you know, bears the brunt of that, that's that's not fair because you're you're hurting other people in that case or your kids. That's or, fair. Yeah. How, how it kind of passes on from you. Yeah. Yeah. So I think that um, I think it comes down to just practicing wisdom. Is it going to get you where you need to do? Mm -hmm. Is it going to be serving the greater good? Because sometimes, sometimes you may take something that's crap, but you know that it serves the greater good. You may come into a company that's failing and it's just a miserable place, but you have the skills to maybe turn it around. It's going to be really, really hard. And there's going to be a lot of challenges on that. And it may tax you and may burn you out. But if the mm -hmm. greater good is you get to save this company, you get to save, you know, 20,000 jobs because you, you were the person who came in and, and helped make that happen and got, were able to turn things around. Is that worth it to you? I think it, it, it really comes, what are your values and what are your principles on that? And I think, yeah. I think it takes a lot of, a lot of self-awareness of yourself and what you can handle and what you really want. And I think that I think that's one of the things that I appreciate about stoicism is that it's not dogmatic. Mm -hmm. You know, I, I remember I was on a Reddit thread one time and somebody said, well, what's the difference between stoicism and religion? And I said, well, stoicism is all principle based. And it's not this dogma of like, you have to do A, B, C, X, Y, Z, and you are, you know, you go to heaven. It's here are some principles and decide what principles are most important to you. Here are the ones that we think are most important are, you know, courage, justice, temperance, and wisdom. And they're all self-reinforcing when you think about it, because in order to have courage, you also have to have wisdom because you need, if you're, if you're foolhardy, you're going to get yourself killed. If you don't have enough courage, then you're not going to stand up and do what's right. So that takes wisdom to balance that out. Yeah. But it also, it takes courage to 
gain wisdom because you have to have the courage to say, oops, I'm wrong, or the courage to know yourself so that you can gain those kind of wisdom and those experiences. It takes wisdom and courage to stand up for justice. And justice is, you know, again, it's it's a principle that everybody kind of has their definition of what justice is. And moderation. You need to know what's moderate for you. You know, maybe having a whiskey a night is, is moderate for you. Maybe having no whiskey a night is, is moderate for you. You know, that's something that everybody needs to decide. And so it's it's harder because it's more expectation on you and you really have to go, okay, what does wisdom mean to me? What does courage mean to me? Am I am I living up to those principles or not? And that's that's why I think stoicism works better than most religions, is because religions have some principles for sure. And you know, I, I mean I growing up Mormon, I definitely saw that and it, I definitely had that as part of my upbringing. And I, I don't regret those aspects of it, but it's also fairly dogmatic. And there are these, mm -hmm. these things that you have to do in order to be saved and, and go to the kingdom of God, you know? And it's like, so stoicism requires more of you because you have to do a lot more thinking. You have to do a lot more of the legwork. You have to do a lot more of the decision-making and the making the judgments and so on and deciding what things are important to you. But it also gives you a lot of flexibility as well to figure out what those things mean for you. And those become yeah, the filters that, yeah. that everything is, everything goes through those filters, which if it doesn't match your principles, then it, it also makes things easier. These are my principles. Does that match up with my principles? No, it misses this big one over here. I, it's, yeah, I don't think it's a just thing, so I'm not going to do it. Throw it out. You yep. got to do something else. Yeah, I appreciate it. And, you know, I think it's interesting you see, I think uh, as... Ideally, you see, you know, religions going through reformations and it does become a little bit less kind of like, here's the very specific things that are written down. And, you know, I think as, as they uh, have evolved, it's it's been nice to see the ones that have gone a little bit more in the principles directions, right? Um, I think, you know, one of the things I was laughing at, you're talking about moderation, right? Uh, and, I, you know, I think we oftentimes think about it as, you know, alcohol or, you know, whatever it might be, right? But it seems like it applies well to the thing that we were just talking about on, you know, it's moderation in how much stress from a bad job are you willing to take for the greater good right exactly. <laughs> you know um yeah. and um i like you know the metaphor that was popping into my mind there right is that you know using stoicism or using some of these other uh sort of uh, uh therapeutic practices i was imagining that kind of like shoveling gravel out of a pit that you know the bad job is dumping into <laughs> Right. And it's, uh, you know, it's this process of kind of, you know, undoing some of that. And there's a point where it becomes overwhelming. But I, but I like the sort of thing that you were saying on recognizing how it is affecting other people. Right. Because I think that that is a good way of sort of detecting when you have taken too much is when you are out of integrity in other places. Right. Yes. When it has become too much where you are getting snippy at people where you are, you know, maybe. Maybe, you know, fudging some some gray areas that you wouldn't otherwise fudge because you're under too much pressure, right? Uh, so I like that as a um, as a sign that it's time to <laughs> pull the ripcord, right? Yeah. yeah, and I think that, I mean, and, and in relationships, it's very much that same way. You know, it's like when do you when do you pull the ripcord and say, okay, enough's enough, this isn't mm -hmm. working, um, and that's a challenging thing. And I think a lot of it, you know, is this relationship helping you to become a better person? You know, if persevering at a crappy job actually helps you to be more patient, be more kind, be more generous, more tolerant of other people, then those challenges are good for you. 
But if, like you said, if it makes you snippier, if it makes you grumpier at home and you start hating your coworkers and you're, you know, you start drinking more and which, which then spirals things down, then obviously that should be a pretty giant red flag to go. And in relationships, the same way, is this relationship making you a better person? Is it mm -hmm. helping you to become more loving, more kind, more generous? Is it, is it building a foundation for you to, to become closer and to be better to people around? If it's not, then you really need to step away from that and go, well, why isn't it? And it, and it could be just, you've gotten into bad patterns with each other and you, and those cycles can be incredibly hard to break. I know in my case for my, both my long-term relationships, there was a lot of trauma and stuff that I had under underneath that I didn't really understand. So I'd be mad about things and arguing about things. And I wouldn't, I wouldn't understand why am I so mad about this? I don't, I don't get this, but <laughs> we, and we're both good people. Why can't we make this work? And some of it was just two people can be great people, but they may just be bad together and yeah. have, have developed bad habits that they are unable to break. And I reached a point where I just couldn't figure out how to change the things that needed to be changed. And so stepping back from that, taking that distance and, and getting to a point where I could heal a lot of those things, but I needed to be a way to be able to heal those things. I couldn't be in the middle of this and always feeling like I was going into battle. And so, it was yeah. like, and I, you know, and, and I recognize that so much of it was just faults of stuff on my own. So many, uh, like I said, dealing with trauma and really trying to understand that from, you know, from the way I grew up, took a lot of hard work and I'm still mm. working through those things and there'll be things that come up as I, you know, I'm in other relationships and stuff and there'll be different walls that will happen, but sometimes you just need to know when to walk away and there's nothing yeah. wrong with that. But we always romanticize, Oh, this couple has been together for 50 years. Isn't that wonderful? And I would think it should rather say, Hey, these people were together for, for a long time. And then they recognized they didn't work and they were smart enough to leave each other before things got too bad. And they were able right. to treat each other with kindness and to come out of it in a way that didn't damage all of the people around them and damage themselves as much and having that wisdom of knowing when to step away from it. I think, I think we should look at that more rather than just being like, Hey, these two put up with each other for 50 years. Isn't that great? Yep. They may absolutely hate each other, you know, at that point and just tolerate each other. You never know. Like I said, there's, there's what you see and then there's the reality behind it. And that sometimes yep. those are, those are incongruous. So. And it's definitely a process. I know every time I think I've gotten a little bit better on that, and I have, then I look back and I'm like, oh man, I should have ended that thing a lot earlier. <laughs> I should. Yeah, so it is a process. Um, yeah. And for me, that's something I'm learning now and I'm recognizing. And and the thing is, is that I don't look at it as, as, a, as a big mistake. I looked at it as mm -hmm. I learned a lot from both, of, the, both right. of those relationships, tons from those relationships. And I grew as a person from them but there were things where we just were incompatible and mm -hmm. now being able to step away from that and finding other relationships that are much healthier and much more just allow me to be myself and I'm accepted for exactly who I am. And that's not saying that I don't put it work into it at all, but it's just saying that I can just be me and that's okay. I don't have to change unless I decide to change and they accept that. And that has been incredibly yes. healthy for me. Yeah, so, that's good. Yeah. I'm glad you're moving in that direction. Yeah, um, yeah, it's been really great. I think a couple points that uh, that was spun on for me is so there's the sort of core historic virtues, right? And I think they're great, and they work well as a, as an intersecting set. But I also definitely encourage people to map out their own personal list, right? Maybe of you know 
whether it's six or eight or 12 or whatever, right? Um, because I think it, it it's very helpful in also mapping your personal growth, right? So like when I first did this a couple of years ago, I remember looking at like a big list of like trying to like pick some from or whatever and authenticity was on there. And I was like, that doesn't mean anything to me, you know? <laughs> and in the, just in the last couple of years, I've been thinking about it a lot more. I'm like, that actually does matter a lot. In, in in some very specific ways, it interfaces with 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 courage and you know all these other sorts of things in important ways. And so, um, you know, I think having that list, figuring out what is your own personal list of those virtues, uh, can be really helpful there. You know, in figuring out when you're leaving, getting out of integrity, right? You know, a stressful job or other sorts of things. Absolutely. So, so what would you say are some of your key principles in your life? I have them up on the website. <laughs> I think. Uh, yeah. So, you know, um, some are, you know, truthfulness, uh, which is different from honesty, right? Uh, mm -hmm. But creativity is one. Um, groundedness is another, right? Um, and so I find these useful because it, um, I used to be a very consequentialist, very utilitarian. And I still think that that's a very important sort of way of looking at things like what, you know, at the end, you know, what's the final tally, Right. But I think if you don't also look at it through virtues and also deontology, like rules that generally work well, you're missing things. And so one of the reasons why I like these virtues so much is that it's so much easier to ask yourself, am I being truthful in this situation? Am I being authentic in this situation? Versus like, is this going to be, you know, better or worse for thousands of people, you know, five years down the line, right? It's just like, we, it's really hard to do the math on that. It's important for strategic decision making, but these virtues make day-to-day -day decision making so much easier, right? Mm -hmm. So what would you say you find the difference between truthfulness and honesty? Oh, me. I mean, it's a very subtle linguistic difference, right? And it's, you know, for me too, right? You know, it's uh, it's a personal. But I think, you know, for me, truthfulness is like, is this a truthful statement or not? Is this conveying truth to this person, right? Mm -hmm. um, and, you know, <laughs> sometimes you can kind of go by the letter of the law on that. And sometimes you want to be like, no, this is like, this is this is not truth by omission, right? You know, this is falsehood by omission. Mission, right honesty i think it's uh, it's a little bit easy to to um easy to misuse that into uh you know like telling it how it is or you know being catty or something right like i think it is it's a little bit easier it's a little too easy to kind of have that drift that way so i just find that truthfulness is a little bit more um you know aligned with that axis of, of virtue um and i think another thing that's really important to say on those virtues is that you have to counterbalance them right so i think um you know, so like one of the ones that's important for me is grace, right? And I think grace, you know, in conversations is sort of like leaving room for people to be wrong or, you know, sort of taking things in stride or, you know, but then I think there's also one, and I don't know if it's, maybe it's authenticity, but I think about it as challenge often where it's like pointing out where people are kind of, you know, being a jerk or like if they're wrong, right? You know, and I think these are both important virtues. And if you have too much of one, you got to, you know, rebalance it with the other, right? Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think for me, probably one of my virtues that would be close to your truthfulness is candor. Mm. So the idea of radical candor, like not just being honest with everything that you say, because that, that easily can lead you to omission, mm -hmm. but trying to be as vulnerable with as vulnerable as you possibly can be with other people and, and practice candor with them. Like, Hey, can I be candid with you? This is what's really going on. Interesting. So that you you can pull them aside and just say, "Hey, I know that that we're we're doing this, we're saying and doing this thing, but let's let's cut the crap and let's really 
hit the <laughs> truth of the matter. Let's let's yeah. let's push what yes, everything I said was honest, everything I said was true, but we're not talking about the real story of things. So it's that ability to take a step, you know, to kind of pull the curtain aside and say, look, this is what's really going on. And mm -hmm. these are the things that I was afraid to tell you. These are the things that yep. I was trying to not show you or keeping from you. But with that, and the balance of that is discretion. Mm -hmm. Because sometimes mm -hmm. you need to keep those here because if you give that kind of candor to the wrong people, it can be very destructive to other people. And so that, that discretion is, is that wisdom to be able to go, huh, you know what? I need to be practice as much candor as I can with this person. And sometimes, mm -hmm. and maybe in, maybe in this situation, that candor is, you know what? Hey, you're being an asshole and you really need to stop because it's not doing yep. any of us any good. Whereas rather than just trying to be nice and trying to be polite to say, dude, really, you know, this, this just doesn't fly. And you really need to change how you're handling this. And if we're going to continue doing business, I would just be bluntly honest with you, this, this isn't going to work if you're going to be continuing to do this way. And so yep. you, rather than trying to be polite, you, you practice that candor of just saying, this is what I really think. But again, that's balanced with that discretion, which I think discretion is a big part of having wisdom to be able to do that. And candor is based on courage because you're being mm -hmm. vulnerable and you're being courageous enough to be vulnerable with that. So for me, that's a big one for me and trying to just rather than say what I think the person wants to hear, I tried to say, this is what I'm really feeling. This is what I'm really thinking. This is the stuff that I'm afraid to tell you, but I think is important to tell you anyway. And that makes sense uh, that you would, you, you, you'd uh, want to encourage yourself to go that way. Cause if I recall correctly, you, uh, I think I listened to a little bit of the ask culture versus ask culture versus guest culture podcast. Right. And you come from a guest culture. Is that right? Oh yeah. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Yep. And lots of people pleasing, lots of just, mm -hmm assumptions made a lot of saying the things that people want to hear so that they're they're happy or that you know in my case yep. a lot of it was just keeping my dad happy so i didn't get beat it was keeping yeah, the church geez. happy so that i didn't yep. get in trouble and so a lot of a lot of misleading a lot of not telling the truth on things and a lot of or just saying what i thought other people wanted to hear and so and yep. that unfortunately spilled over into my two major relationships mm -hmm. i would say something like Oh, what's the thing I need to say that I don't get in trouble? And they'd be like, why did you lie to me about that? Why didn't you just tell me? I really want your opinion. I want to know what you really think about this. And I'd be like, you know, deer in the headlights of like, uh, I don't know if I trust that or not. Cause my dad was going yeah. to tell me the truth and I tell him and I get in trouble. It's like, well, you yeah. asked me to tell you the truth and I did, I got in trouble. So you punished me for being honest. And so that it's Sorry. what I was taught was that being honest was not the right thing to do. Yeah, implicitly, right? Yeah, mm -hmm. um, yeah. Well, good on you for counterbalancing that. I do, uh, you know, just on the on that podcast, I, I feel like I do, um, I do think that there are some benefits of uh, guest culture that maybe should be, you know, uh, championed a little bit. You know, I think that that a lot of people have to move a little bit more towards asking a lot of things, right? But like, there is really nice things in having people kind of you know, anticipate your, your needs or kind of do kind things without you asking. Right. Or, yes, um, sure. and so I think, you know, it's kind of pulling, you know, what, what's the healthy and unhealthy parts of both of these cultures. Right. And how can we kind of pull them in? Right. Yeah, yeah absolutely. Like, uh, a friend of mine, I was at a party, uh, last weekend and, um, I was upstairs and they, they had these little coconut, crispy coconut rolls and 
So I was just like, I picked one up and I was like, Ooh, I think she'll like one of those. So I grabbed one and I went nice. down and I was like, you know, and I was just like, open up. And she's like, huh? And so like, put that in her mouth. She was like, Oh my God. Oh, this is, thank you. That was super yummy. And then like a little bit later in the night, we're, you know, we're kind of winding down. And so um, I went and got a, a little glass of whiskey and I took some and shared it with her. Mm -hmm. And then like, because I knew that she would like that. That's just one of her mm -hmm. things that she likes as well. And so uh, the next day she sent me a note saying, hey, by the way, those two little things, that was so thoughtful. And that just warms well, my heart. That's the that's the stuff that I love is when somebody is trying to be considerate of me in that way and thinks of me above and beyond what they have to do, but knew that I would like that. And so they they take time out and effort into that. So, yeah. That's you know, nice. Yeah. Things like that. I think, it, yeah. And it points to, I think, you know, one of the nice things about that guest culture is the sort of nuance and the subtlety, right? You know, because yes. not everybody would appreciate that happening, but you knew this person well, right? And, and you know, you had that relationship with her where you were able to leverage that nuance to do these really nice things, right? Yeah. Yeah. And I think yeah. it's, but what I think it is, is it's recognizing that with the guest culture, the main thing that people need to recognizing is that you're going to be wrong and no is okay. Mm -hmm. And that's where mm -hmm. yep. they get into trouble. Well, I did this nice thing for you. Why didn't you appreciate it? I didn't ask you to do it. Well, you know, not getting offended over that because you made an assumption and you get offended that somebody didn't like your assumption. And that's what happens yes. a lot in guest cultures. And so yeah. that was that's often a big thing with that. And that, that takes me to one of my favorite um you know, stoic exercises, right? Is this, let me see if I can get the pronunciation correctly, uh, premeditatio malorum, premeditatio malorum, yeah, uh, of the, uh, where you, you basically walk yourself through a, you know, negative situation happening, right? And I, I want to make sure that, you know, I flag, right, that there's a there's a good way of doing this or healthy way and a not healthy way, like, right? Yes. You know, you can do this where you're just catastrophizing, right? But, you know, it's it's sort of either by yourself or with another person. I've had some therapists really help me do this too, which is great. Of sort of playing that tape through some really horrible scenario that you're worried about happening, whether it's a rejection or whether it's, you know, something catastrophic happening. And then sort of continuously reflecting on, how the tools that you have, the sort of, you know, tools for inner peace and all this kind of stuff, how you're going to be bringing those to bear, how you're going to be okay regardless, right? How it's not going to be as bad as you think, how you're going to make it through, right? And just kind of, um, are you, you, you come out of the other side with the, I've already uh, been there, done that, right? <laughs> I know I can get through this thing, even though it was just a mind experiment you did for, you know, half an hour, right? Yeah, um, uh, absolutely. So. And I, uh, do you have an example of when you've done that? Uh, I've done it with business stuff, right? Uh, where it was very important for me to do the premeditatio malorum on the business shutting down, right? And I feel like that is one of those very key ways of building that uh, indifference because you recognize that you'll be okay. Even though you poured a lot of life savings into this, even though you, you know, you're going to have a lot of people upset with you, even though you know, it's probably not going to be as bad as you think, you're going to be okay, you're going to get through it, right? And that just, again, as you were saying earlier, you do not know how much stress you were under until you're out from it. That's when those exercises really come in is you come out the other side and you're like, whoa, I did not know how much weight I was carrying on just implicitly. Part of me was very scared of this happening, right? And now I'm just, you know, maybe 50% less scared, right? Yeah. Agreed. Yeah. I, know, I, I, I know for me, an example of that that happened was after I got divorced, mm. um, the way things were structured between alimony, child support, all of that stuff, like I was struggling. 
and my company that I was working for was a startup and they bounced a whole bunch of my checks. Mm. And so there was one point where I had $17 to last me a week. Oh man. Jeez. And I was just like, I mean, I was right. I, I cycle. And so I was cycling into work every day on, you know, on my bike so that I didn't have to use my car. So I didn't have to pay for gas. Yeah. Well, um, and so that, I mean, and I was, it kept me in good shape and stuff like that. And then I had a date that week and luckily she was super cool. And I'm like, I got $17 and like there's sushi place right up the street from me. So we're like, she's like, okay, well let's go grab some sushi. And she, she paid for her half and she's just like, this is what I can offer. She's like, that's fine. And I'm just like, yeah. you know, she knew my basic situation. And then um, I actually had to call my ex because I had to go see a doctor and I didn't have enough money to pay me for the copay. And oh. I was just like, I kind of borrow some money. I, I, I don't know what to do here. And for a little bit, it kind of stressed me out. I was really panicked of like, how, what happens if I lose my job? What happens if I can't do all this stuff? And so I was just like, okay, wait a second, wait a second. Okay. Say I lost my job. And the economy was a little bit tight at that time. And I'm like, okay, so I lose my job and say that I can't get another one for a while. Well, maybe I'd have to move back to Salt Lake and, and live with my mom for a while or back to Minneapolis or, you know, move to Salt Lake and live with my brother or something like that for a bit. Yeah, I wouldn't be able to see my kids for a bit, which would really suck. Um, I wouldn't be able to pay child support and other things like that. But my ex-wife had a job at the time and was getting remarried. And so, but I just kind of walked through all of these things of like, could I sleep in my car? Yeah, I could sleep in my car. And I've got a, I've got a gym membership that's the lifetime thing. And I could go to the gym and I could shower every morning. So, okay. You know, I, and I walked through all the possibilities of what could happen and what I could do about it. And because of that, it made it so that I did a number of things. It made it so that money didn't have that much, as much hold over me anymore. And that was really tremendous because it was just like, Oh, okay. I'm all, I'm all worried about money and not having enough and all of this stuff. And I'm like, it's not that I, it's not how much money I have. It's what am I able to do with it? How much am I able to survive without it? And so it took mm -hmm. a lot of that fear away just by doing that one, that kind of walkthrough. And then years later, I found, hey, there's a term for that. And that's what I did. And it was like, <laughs> nice. a, little bit was, a little bit at first was catastrophizing. <laughs> then I'm like, okay, just yeah. calm down. Will you be right. able to survive? And I was like, okay, that's what this is. This is an experiment to see if I can survive. And I'm like, yeah, I'll be able to do this. Yeah, that makes sense. Um and you know, that's one of the things that I think is so interesting about this philosophy, right? Is that, um, you know, it's got the famous quote of, you know, it was, you know, the, the, one of the two major contributors, right? An emperor and a slave, right? And, you know, I haven't had quite the same, you know, situations of, you know, you know, acute financial distress, uh, but, you know, and it's, there's aspects of that, that, you know, I, I want to empathize with, but it's going to be hard. And I, you know, I, that, mm -hmm. that fucking sucks. <laughs> but I think the, the thing that like is so interesting about this is it's the exact same techniques. It's the same advice that you can, you know, want to have no matter what the individual problem is. Right. Yeah. You know, whether it's that or, the, you know. Yeah. Yeah. Definitely the, definitely the balance of like making it so it's not catastrophizing. And, and so you, and they, they recommend if you do it, it's the idea is to make sure you're in a safe place and you're in a safe mindset. Like, hey, mm -hmm. this is just a practice. This is just imagining what would I do? It's it's role playing. It's like it's like playing a video game in a way, but in your mind of like, yeah. okay, worst thing happens. What happens? Let's see, let's play this out and see where it goes. And that's what makes us great as humans is we have that ability to hallucinate and to create scenarios in there. And which is why they say it's not Sorry. the thing that scares you, but but your perception of it. 
That's right. Yeah. yeah. Don't suffer twice, right? <laughs> exactly. Because you can scare yeah. the crap out of yourself over something that never oh, that may never happen. <laughs> God, I know this. It's so it is, it's so intense. It is you um one of the things that that gets me is um you know, especially when situations, you know, in entrepreneurship has a lot of these where there's not a clear answer, right? Like it doesn't matter who you talk to, like it doesn't matter how sage they are, they're not necessarily going to be able to tell you what to do. Right. Yeah. Um, and so finding peace, even when you don't know the path <laughs> and the consequences, you know, seem dire. Right. Um, yeah. It, it, I, it, what it does is stoicism for me helps you to be able to face risk in a, in a much healthier way, because, you know, if you can look at risk and say, okay, am I willing to risk that? Am I willing to lose those things? What would happen if I lose those things? Would I be able to survive? Would I be okay? Would mm. I be able, what would mm. I be able to do all of that? And mm. it, the long answer is for almost everything. I mean, unless you're jumping out of airplanes, you know, and that doesn't go well, um, is that there's a good chance that whatever it is that you risk isn't going to kill you. It may mm. suck for a while while you rebuild, but it isn't going to kill you. And being able to understand that that worst case scenario will allow you to take a lot more risks in your life and be able to step up and do things that you were scared to do and that you might not have done in a way that, you know, it's like, okay, if the worst case scenario happens, if I have to, you know, move into a, a crappy one bedroom studio apartment and eat ramen for a while until I regroup. Okay. I can do that. I could live with that. Mm -hmm. And then I'd rebuild. So it helps you to take those risks, I think in life. And I think that's, that's, that's actually helpful. Yeah. That's helpful for me to think about. Cause I think that that is, that's still one of those places where I struggle a lot and, and is, is sort of like acting under, large uncertainty. And I think I hadn't really thought about that as taking risks. Right. Um, but I think it is right. It's, it's sort of trusting your God on things or, you know, acting when you, yeah. Yeah. Interesting. Nice. Mm. So we talked earlier about possibly jumping a bit more into entrepreneurship and stuff. Yeah. So let's kind of go down that path and, um, yeah. Explain how stoicism has helped you a bit more with some of your ideas in entrepreneurship. Yeah, great question. Maybe I'll start backwards. So the most recent stuff, you know, is trying to do a um, kind of like a social impact business, right? And it involved, you know, in retrospect, you know, there's there's definitely things that I, I might do a little different, right? But it was sort of turning a, a dream or a vision into a product, which is a hard path. <laughs> uh, but one of the things that it really pushed me to do and, and and grapple with, maybe even more so than if it was a successful business or a a, a like great idea for a product, right? Was um, handle. There's this there's this really great visual of, you know, you have like ego, right? And it's like an empty circle with ego. And then you sort of break out humility and confidence, right? And like, these are the two healthy forms of this thing that you normally are sort of grappling with, which is ego, right? And I think that that ego is both about yourself, but also about like your ideas and your startup, right? Mm -hmm. And so, you know, it can be one of the things to, to make it more object level is, you know, when you're putting together a pitch deck or whatever, right? It's like, how much are you um, telling a fancy story versus how much are you just cleanly explaining a very, uh, like, solid business numbers, solid business plan, right? And I think 
you know, where the ego comes in maybe a little bit or, or where I've sort of noticed that was, you know, trying to, to play up that story really, you know, okay, I have this thing. How do I sort of like build all the scaffolding to make myself believe this enough that I can pitch it to somebody, right? And I think there's a little bit of that that has to happen. But the more that you break that down into where is the humility here? Where are the things that, that might not go right? But more importantly, that confidence is different from the ego. It's different from the, okay, how do I build this story up? That is the sort of well-founded. That is where you could poke at any part of that structure and it will not collapse, right? Mm -hmm. um, and so, you know, I think that's one of the more recent lessons that I've learned is that anytime I'm noticing that I am you know, spending a lot of time, <laughs> more time than I should be, uh, you know, trying to sort of like uh, uh, give fancy explanations for why something is a good idea rather than, you know, questioning those foundations and, and really trying to like find that that confidence rather than ego in the thing. Um, I think that's important. But let me just take just one second to kind of think at like a high level so I can give you like a crisp answer on this. Um so the main thing, right, in this, just as, you know, any aspect of life, but I think particularly if you're starting a business, it's good because it's kind of, you know, time bound, you kind of know when you're doing it, you can kind of prepare for it, right, is making sure that you are going into it and maintaining good practices around emotional self-management, right? Uh, because that is what's going to help you make good decisions, going to help you be kind to your employees and all this kind of stuff. And so really, you know, making sure that you are having the right tools, having the right, you've read, you know, you, you're kind of refreshed on the books, right? You've got, you know, whatever reminders that you have, you're sort of, if you're doing reflections, you're doing reflections, right? Um, because we can talk about individual cases where this is useful, but the whole, whole point of stoicism is that you kind of have to do it yourself, <laughs> you know? Um, yeah. You know, with wisdom, you can't just hear it, right? Yeah. Even when it's stoicism, even when it's not experience, you have to do the thing. You have to, you know, use the tool, right? So you can be as familiar with stoicism as you can, but you have to figure out, okay, how, when am I going to be starting to use this? How can I remind myself to use it, right? Uh, that's why I love those coins. That's why I have kind of things on my wall, right? Yeah. Well, I always, um, for me, yeah. I looked at it so, uh, kind of a right along with that. Yep. Um, I've always said that stoicism is a very self-centered philosophy. Mm -hmm. Not a selfish philosophy, but a self-centered philosophy mm. in that you recognize that you're the only thing you have control over. So you're the only thing you can work on. And so therefore, it, it does center around you. And so it can seem yes. egotistical in a way because you're going, well, this is all that I have control over. And so it's, it's almost anti-ego, even though it, what you're working on exclusively is yourself. So it's kind of ironic that you, by being self-centered, you become a better person, which makes you less selfish and you're able to mm -hmm. be better all around because you've turned this into a great tool that doesn't just serve you, but serves people around you. Yeah. Um, and, uh, you know, there's a quote that I liked where the, the, there was somebody who would go home every, um, you know, Thanksgiving and talk about their Buddhism and how uh, happy they were and how, you know, and eventually their mom said, I love you uh, when you're being a Buddha, but not when you're being a Buddhist or whatever, you know, it's like, oh, you know, oh, please, oh. please show me your, your <laughs> show, not tell. Yeah, you're right. Exactly. Right. You know, and I think that, you know, that's one of the things that you're saying there, right. Is that if you're practicing it, people around you are going to feel it. They're not going to necessarily know that you're doing it right, but they are. Um, 
And I think, you know, one of the things that you said, and I'm going to keep trying to go back to the business stuff as it sort of comes up, but I think the, um, you talked about having control over, right? And the Stokes talk about that a lot is you have control over your, your thoughts and your actions, right? And, but I think there's an important asterisk on that, which is that you have to consider obliquity, right? You can't necessarily just be like, you can't just approach it head on. You can't be like, I'm not going to think that thought anymore, right? Uh, or I'm never going to go down that spiral anymore, right? You have to come at it, you know, you might have to use other forms of therapy to like, you know, prevent that, right? You still have control over it, but it may not just be a brute force, you know, direct approach, but, but there is ways of addressing that, you know? Yeah. Um, and then uh, the other thing that was mentioned was, was like retrospectives, right? The, the Stoics are very big on um, journaling, right? Um, you know, keeping that sort of daily, you know, for me, it's kind of, what did I do today that I was sort of like proud of that was aligned what did i do today that you know that wasn't and then sort of like what do i want to do differently tomorrow right um uh it's always a practice i'm getting better at it but you know i try to do that regularly but i think that that's also important in business right um you know i like agile methodologies and one of the most important parts of that is retrospective right every two weeks right yeah where you sit down with a team and you create an intellectually safe space uh and you sort of have that same kind of retrospective right um so while maybe not like an exclusively stoic technique, I think that that one's a very, very important one to carry over. Yeah, um, I think that if you don't, you don't sit down and figure out what you've learned, then it's hard to make sure that you get it. So pulling the meta yep. out of things allows you to go, oh, well, hey, this is a pattern that we have. And you start to see patterns as well, which is, you know, we're all, I mean, as humans, we're all pattern-based things. So if you find patterns that work and you can identify them, then you can amplify them. Totally, totally. I think one of the things that I have noticed, we'll see how much stoicism I can weave into this, but that it does seem like there's kind of stages of being an entrepreneur. Like the first stage is oftentimes like one coming from like naivete where you're just like, I have a thing and I'm going to do it because I'm awesome and there's nothing going to stop me. Right. Uh, and, you know, BC's like funding these people sometimes because, you know, most of them are going to fail, but they have enough naivete where they can just kind of bust through <laughs> red tape. Uh, then I think there's a phase sometimes where you get into where you know better, right? But you become overly self-critical, right? You get you get stuck in these spirals of, you know, well, I know that I can't do this. I know I can't do that, right? Um, and then I think the the sort of next stage, right, is, um, and, and in that stage, it's hard, like, a lot, of, a lot of your inner wisdom gets sort of like drowned out by these sort of critiques, right? Um, and then I think the next stage is how do you sort of integrate those two, right? Um, how do you sort of shift like what is doubt in the second stage into sort of like questioning, like very specific questions that you're asking yourself and ideally to curiosity, right? Um, how do you um, get into places of that sort of grounded conviction, that um, confidence that we talked about, right? Mm -hmm. um, where, you know, in the first stage, you're kind of running on ego, <laughs> right? But then how do you sort of get to that place of confidence? Yeah. So I think that it's just, it's, it's interesting to, you know, I, I liked what you were saying earlier about the, you know, considering, you know, sort of risk-taking, right? Because I think that that is part of that is, you know, finding that sort of stoic groundedness in taking risks, even though you know all the advice, right? Even though you know that somebody could tell you that this is a bad decision or whatever in retrospect, right? Still having that uh, despite knowing better, right? Or despite knowing so many pieces of advice. Because yeah. there's, there's two little truisms that I had written down here too on on entrepreneurship, one is that uh, uh, every company has always violated a very important piece of advice that people have given, right? They, you know, they, they're doing it differently. 
but most of them have taken most of the advice. Yeah. Right. And so, you know, be careful when you are, be very, very careful when you're ignoring a key piece of business advice, but you know, you're always going to break one or two of those rules. Um, yeah. Agreed. And if nobody ever did, then nothing would be innovative and everything would be, you know, everything would basically be the same. And, and so it's, it's having courage to break the rules in the right way and knowing yeah. when to do that. And sometimes you'll get it. Sometimes you won't. And that's, I think that's a big thing that has been harder for me personally is, is learning that is being more willing to take risks of things and to be willing to fail at those. And mm-hmm. so, um, especially even when the risks aren't really that big or they aren't expensive, they aren't going to be, you know, failure is small, but being willing to just try and to be like, okay, let me throw this out there and see if it worked. Oh, that didn't work out so well. Now, is it because I didn't do it wrong? Is it poorly thought out? Is it well not well planned? Am I not selling it well? Uh, is this something that I just took advice from somebody and they thought, hey, that's a good idea. You should go do that. Okay, I tried it. And, you know, if I didn't really believe in it that well, but I just thought, yeah, let me try that. But still, even with those, I've noticed that more lately, especially um, just with more and more no's of trying things out and asking people, hey, can I, do you want to do this? Hey, do you want to do that? And they're like, no, 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 no. It's like, okay, but the more that I ask, the less it it bothers me. It's like, all right, okay. Mm. You know, it's that's good. Yeah. And so that's been really helpful for me is, is being willing to at least ask the question, at least willing to step up and try that rather than just going, well, they might say no. It's like, well, I'll ask them. And then if they say no, then okay. They said, no, not a big deal. It's uh I think I did a tiny bit of it, but you're saying that I, I'm reflecting that I probably should have done a lot more premeditation malorum on investor meetings. Yeah, no, that's not a bad way to do it if you go in there. And what that does is the other thing is it doesn't just prepare you emotionally. You also come up with scenarios of possible what ifs that you may not have thought before right. if you hadn't done that experiment. If you expect it to go down path A and you don't consider path B, C, D, and E, you know, yeah, you, you could have missed something. You could have gone, well, I think, okay, but what if somebody does this objection and, and there's also this possible objection, this possible objection, this one, how do I address those? If you just go, oh, it's going to go path A and that's it. So we're good. And you get in there and some yeah. investor goes, what about this? And you're like, oh, I didn't even think about that. Yeah. There's a technique that I, that I use that's, that's somewhat similar to that, which is, um, you need to come up with a net catchy name for it. But basically, you um, you brainstorm out what does it look like if this thing goes as horribly as possible, right? Like every single like sort of major thing goes wrong, right? Uh, and then what you do is you sort of, you step it back one level, which is like, what had to happen in order for that horrible thing to go wrong? What had to happen in order for that horrible thing to go wrong, right? Um, and so then you know the kind of the things to avoid that, you know, <laughs> are going to chain into bad things. And then you do what usually feels better is the opposite. You map out what happens if this goes amazingly well. What are all the things that happen? And then you also backward chain at one step, right? So it's like, yeah. oh, they, you know, they, you know, introduced us to has a bunch of money. Well, you know, obviously then I either probably had to ask or imply that we're raising, right? You know, right? So, you know, obviously it has to happen, right? So mm-hmm. I've had to be a very, very helpful brainstorming exercise. But I like the idea of combining that then with a little bit more of the actual visualization, right? Um, yeah, I mean, what the term that popped in my head was like the multiverse approach because really yeah, that's kind of right. what it is. It's like, well, in this multiverse, this happened. In this multiverse, that happened. And in this multiverse, we had this other scenario. 
and allowing yourself to be open to those things. I mean, it's kind of like uh, there's that quote where it said, if you only know your side of the argument, you don't know the argument at all. <laughs> yeah, that's a great quote. Yeah. And yeah. I, I can't remember who said that, but I was just like, oh, that's really true. And so it's like, so make sure you understand what your opponent's argument is. All right. I, so I did. We, yeah, go ahead. Go ahead. I was going to say, um, you know, if there's any, um, you know, I, I threw a kind of little popcorn style thoughts on business and socialism, but if there's any kind of, you know, last questions or areas of that that you'd like to hit, I'd be happy to. Otherwise, I had some, you know, thoughts that we could go back to on the um, uh, kind of like the system one emotional stuff that, to, to fit in to, to uh, help support the other side of sure. health. Yeah. Um, yeah, well, I mean, we're coming up on over an hour and a half here I think. <laughs> yeah so um yeah let's let's go let's go on with system yep. one system two and then we kind of wrap Great. things up from there perfect yeah i think we can hit it relatively quickly but i would feel a little remiss without saying that um talking about stoicism because i think that it uh, especially for you know i think you and i are you know kind of you know sort of logically minded you know think about you know things and systems and such um and i know for me one of the really important realizations in the last few years is um you know, the importance of doing certain types of therapy that isn't necessarily like talk therapy or isn't sort of using words. <laughs> because um, the, the sort of model that I roughly have, right, is that kind of like emotions generate thoughts uh, and thoughts generate emotions, right? Yeah. And a lot of stoicism is trying to change the thoughts to, you know, make them not generate as bad emotions. Um, but if you don't address the other side of that cycle, uh, you're kind of you 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 get to struggle on the same things over and over and over again, right? Okay, yeah, I can see. And that. so, um, I don't know if you've you know engaged with any of these things, but you know some of the stuff. And the thing that's funny for me is it has to be a little bit. It's usually more woo, right? The stuff that's on the emotional side. And so I have to kind of retranslate it for myself. Sometimes I've learned that like I'll work with people where I don't actually believe their the mechanism of action that they're proposing but like i believe that there is probably a different one you know right but i can still believe that it's effective um but you know so these are things like you know the closest you get to kind of you know scientific right is like emdr right i don't know if you're familiar with this um you know brain spotting is similar to that um there's other forms of somatic therapy have you looked at ifs at all internal family systems uh yes i did look into that for a little bit um but it was quite some time ago so i'm i a bit fuzzy on on how that worked, but yeah, yeah. I mean, you know, the fundamentals, and this uh, it's very natural for me because I'm a Dungeons and Dragons player. Uh, but uh, basically, it's kind of uh, personifying different aspects of your personality. Some people will say that it's more like this is how the brain works, and for others, it's more of a metaphor, right? Um, but you know, treating different aspects of you as sort of different people with different personalities. Uh, and so you can have conversations between the two of them. You can recognize when one is trying to sort of like guard the other from experiencing an emotion. Um, and that I've just found that to be tremendously helpful, um, in sort of breaking up some of these sort of things that are just coming across without words. Right. Um, so yeah. And then obviously, you know, like, you know, Buddhism and, in, in, in sort of mindful meditation, mindfulness meditation, other sorts of things can help with that. Um, but, um, yeah, I don't, have you engaged with, you said you're familiar with like EMDR, have you engaged with any of these sort of systems or? Um, I did use some EMDR a while back with a therapist. It was probably about three or four years ago. Um, and it seemed, it, it didn't seem to help me nearly as much. And I don't know if it was uh, that he wasn't very good at it. 
you know, yeah. as a possibility because I've had some friends who've done it and they're just like, oh my God, it's the greatest thing that has ever happened to me. And I'm like, okay, I, I certainly didn't have that response out of it. For me, honestly, honestly, I, the things that have been honestly almost more helpful, a, a totally different modality, mm -hmm. are psychedelics. Psychedelics sure. have been very yeah. helpful. Um, yep. I've had some very interesting experiences with that that helped me to one face some some hard things mm -hmm. and two see my potential nice um there's one that i that one experience that i had where the best way to describe it is uh the way that this one works is kind of like if your brain was a, a porsche Mm -hmm. and you took it, it's well broken in, you've had it for 20 years, you take it to the shop and you go, hey, why don't you clean out all the gunk, tighten everything up, you know, yeah. change all the fluids, do all the things, nice. add spark plugs and all that, and they bring it out, and while it's still the same old thing, it's just had a nice tune-up of everything. And mm -hmm. before it was like going, and they bring it out, like, <laughs> like, oh, this is how my brain should work. This is how nice. things need to connect. And so for me those hours in that experience allowed me to see this is the potential I have because all the tools are there. You can connect to these things. And so take care of your health, take care of your things, work on your thinking, make sure you're getting enough sleep, doing all of those things, just the fundamentals, you know, that a lot of people ignore. So I think the things that have helped me out dramatically in working through a lot of these things are the fundamentals, making sure I get enough sleep sure. has been huge. Um, my testosterone levels were very low. So I got some treatment for mm -hmm. that. And that my energy level is, is, is way up from that. So Interesting. Uh, eating healthier, not drinking as much, obviously not smoking, those type of things. Um, making sure that I get enough exercise, lifting weights, all of those things. I think that that for me is one of the things that most people miss out. They want some cure without having to put in any physical labor, but we experience the world in our bodies. So if you're not taking care of yourself physically, that's probably 80% of why you feel like crap. Yeah. If you, if you eat like crap, you don't exercise, you don't get enough sleep, you know, maybe you have some hormone imbalances, other things like that. If you're not taking care of those things because how you feel in your body impacts how you feel in your head very, very dramatically. And because if you're tired, you don't, you don't feel great up in your head. You're like, oh, I'm just tired and feel kind of grumpy and snippy about things. If you, but if you were well rested and you feel good and you ate a great meal and then it's easy to feel relaxed and happy. And so I think that that right there, I think would be a cure for so many things that people suffer. It would not, a, maybe not a full cure, but it would certainly send them on the right path. It would support the mental health work that they would need to do mm -hmm. along with talk therapy, along with some of the other things like that. So I think for me, I guess you could call that a, a, a somatic type thing of making sure I get enough yeah. sleep and, and doing all fair, of those yeah. things and exercise, of course, just, just, you just feel so much better. You feel, you feel the expression of your body and its goodness. Like when you go and lift weights and you feel the strength of your muscles, you feel the tension and the tightness and you, know, you stretch it out and you're like, Oh, that felt really good. And you know, then the next day you're just a little bit sore from that, but you can feel how your muscles feel good because of that. And you, you know, as things are getting back in shape, it feels really wonderful to do that. So those that are makes kind of a lot my, of sense. Those are my non-talk therapy therapies, as I yeah. call them. And I think that's a you know, it's a great point that you made there, right? Where it's like not not any one of these individual one is going to work for everybody, right? Yeah. You know, it might be you know 
that uh, you know might be EMDR for somebody, it might be breath work for somebody else, it might be right. But figuring out what are those other pieces that are a little bit more embodied, a little bit more sort of emotion centric, right? That they need to to come in there. Yeah. So um, yoga was um, always a good one for me because the blood flow and the stretching was always great. Yeah. Um, and even just straight up meditation. You know, mm-hmm. And I yeah. haven't I've fallen off with that because I've been so busy with other things. But um, about two years ago, I did a, a sixty day stretch where I did did meditation for 60 minutes for 60 days. That's fantastic. Yeah. And it was hard. It was really, really hard. But because like the first 40 minutes, your brain just is like, (laughs) and then about 20, you got about 20 minutes left and it starts to just kind of calm down a little bit and you just get a little bit more control over that. But just that discipline of putting in that work of just sitting with my brain for an hour and just letting it, kind of do its thing. I wasn't trying to control it. I was just trying to be aware of what was going on and then focus back on my breathing. And then it would wander off and do its thing. And then I just focus back on my breathing. And it was just a, a way to kind of check back in so that I wasn't just following my thoughts like this so that I could step back and follow with those thoughts and watch them and go, okay, now that I'm focusing on my breathing. I can think about those thoughts and what they were doing. And so it was a way to kind of practice that observer and observed and that helped me to gain a lot more control over my own thoughts and awareness of my own thoughts, which is very, very challenging. It takes a lot of work. Yes, it does. Well, it's it's uh, it's great that we have so many of these tools passed down through the eons. Then, so um, yeah. this has been this has been really fun. Um, yeah, this has been a great conversation. Uh, any last thoughts you want to throw in? Or it's a good question. You know, I think we covered a lot of great ground today. Um, you know, maybe we'll uh, we'll have you over at reroute at some point. Uh, we can continue the conversation, but um, no, this is great. Yeah. No, I totally love that. So um, also, it was kind of the last thing I like to do with my guests. Is there anything that you want to, you know, give a shout out to that you want people to go check out? Uh, maybe follow you on your socials, your website, where wherever it is you want to kind of direct them. Yeah, so the first place um, you can find us, we have a podcast, reroute.fm. Um, we're on hiatus right now, but subscribe to get updates on season three coming out. Uh, we have a great back catalog of people working on addressing homelessness, addressing sort of doing counterfactual technology history in order to you know plot uh, issues that are coming up with privacy. Um, and uh, if there's any guests that you have suggestions for us, uh, we're always open ears. Uh, you can find me at uh, willheight.io. Um, I have different ways of contacting me and socials on there. Um, okay. And yeah, it's just been a pleasure. I always love talking about stoicism and going deep on some of these topics. So Yeah, absolutely. And I will make sure to put those things in the show notes so that Great. people can find you. So I really appreciate your time. And uh, I look forward to talking you with you on, on your podcast sometime in the future. <laughs> <laughs> I hope it works out. All right, yeah, take care. Great. All right, we'll catch you later. And that's the end of this week's Stoic Coffee Break podcast. As always, be kind to yourself, be kind to others, and thanks for listening.